thanks uh, for being here this morning. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the elders here at Substance uh, on sabbatical this year, but I have the opportunity to preach the next two weeks as uh, Ronnie's on vacation. As we talked about me filling in a couple of weeks, uh, he first said, you want to preach a Sunday? And I said, no, give me two. And uh, I want to preach about eternity for two weeks. You know, that's kind of an oxymoron in itself, right? It's like, I, I did it to myself two weeks to talk about eternity. That uh, wasn't wise on my part, but that's what we're going to do. The next two weeks, we're going to take a look about the truth of eternity. It's um, one of those things after being a Christian for well over 35 years, I think we have a tendency to talk about uh, just the gospel which is important, but rarely do we talk about what are the details of eternity, where I will spend eternity. So I I realize for those of you who are uh, on the internet watching us, this is your last week, so here's my shameless plug to make sure you come next week when I talk about heaven and what are the details of heaven. I don't think you want to miss that, and I mean it seriously. I really want to dig into some misconceptions about eternity and heaven. You know, it's interesting for most people, we don't talk much about eternity unless we're sitting at a funeral, right? And for every one of us, I remember as a young child even, my grandfather died sitting there and I was probably in the first grade. That's the first time I'd ever thought about eternity. It's kind of a, a strange thing, even in the church, but outside the church, that we don't spend much time talking about that. Well, maybe it's because we don't know much about it, or maybe it's just a scary thing for us to talk about. But I think for most people, it's a, a topic that we kind of want to shove off to the side, thinking, well, if I don't talk about it, if I don't think about it, it'll just kind of go away and I don't have to deal with it. And it brought me back to uh, when the pandemic started in uh, February of 2020. Kim and I were taking a trip to Florida. And uh, I was going to be there for about three weeks, and it ended up being three months, which wasn't so bad. But uh, on on the way to the airport, her brother and sister-in-law called and said, we're at Sam's Club, would you like us to buy you a case of toilet paper? (laughs) Yeah, and and we both said, no, I I think we're good. I don't think we need a case of toilet paper. And they said, really, it's flying off the shelves. I was like, it'll be good. There's no problem. Well, we get to Florida. First couple weeks are not so bad. And then the panic, you know, just jumps into our life. We didn't buy the case of toilet paper. And so we're starting to go to the grocery store. First week, no big deal, but no toilet paper. And about the third week, I pull up to the grocery store and I tell Kim, quick, get out of the car. There's a lady with toilet paper. (laughs) Don't stop at any aisles. Just go get some toilet paper. You know, it's like reality hit then, right? Reality hits for us on eternity 
when we're faced with the fact that we can't reason it away, that you have to think about it and you have to deal with it. So this week, uh, we're going to take the first week to talk about the negative side of eternity, um, Hades and hell, which are two separate places, which I'll talk about. Next week, we'll talk about the present heaven and the eternal heaven. And I'll explain that a little bit then. But what do you know about eternity? You ever spent any time studying, looking? You know, does scripture really teach us much about what heaven or hell will be like? Well, I will say yes. As a matter of fact, there's much more information about heaven than hell. We just don't necessarily study it. So that's what I'm hoping to do with you the next two weeks. Looking at two options that people have for eternity. The next two weeks, we're going to look at the truth about eternity. In order to set this up, I'm going to jump around a bit. So if you don't have a Bible, please get on your phone and look on that or your iPad, whatever you have. In the back are some Bibles because I really want you to follow along with me through this sermon. We're going to start out by just trying to answer the question why eternity is something we wrestle with. Very quickly, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the account of God creating all things. And after God had created all things, he said it is very good. Everything was perfect. Nothing was tainted. It's not like what we see now. He called it very good. And in Genesis, then chapter 1, verse 27, he says that uh, man and woman have been created in his image. We are image bearers. We use that language a lot here at Substance, don't we? We are image bearers. We've been created by God and for God. We have the ability to relate and enjoy and worship and interact with God. And when we don't do that, there's a missing piece to us. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says that God breathed into the nostril of man the breath of life. Not only a physical existence that happened, but a spiritual life God breathed into man. And so we are made up of both a physical existence and a soulfulness, if you will, a soul existence, two components. And so when we die, there's a physical death in the ground and an existence of the soul that lives on that this is getting to next week's sermon, but those two get reunited in a resurrection. And so we live with a body for eternity. Listen to what Ecclesiastes says. Chapter 3, verse 11. God has put eternity in man's heart. God has put eternity in each of us. And so it's key for us to know that as we start talking about forever, if you will. 
because we're going to live forever somewhere. But you have two choices. Now here's the part I want us to get. If you jump ahead in Genesis to chapter 3, it's one of those chapters that you might be familiar with or you might not. Chapter 3 is when sin enters the world. Adam and Eve in the garden, in this perfect setting, enjoying God, fellowshipping with him. There was no good thing withheld from them. And the serpent enters the sea and uh, now begins to engage with Adam and Eve. And he asks them some questions. And it pertains to the one thing that God said they were not to enjoy or participate eating in. It's a tree in the middle of the garden, you remember, right? It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They engage with Satan. God had said, you can enjoy all things, but if you eat of that tree, you will surely, what? Die. You will surely die. Satan in his craftiness says, you're not going to die if you eat that. And it was in that moment that Adam and Eve were forced, as image bearers, to ask themselves some hard questions. They, they were forced to wrestle with, is what God said true or untrue? Will I die if I eat of this? Satan and his craftiness, sin in its deception, if you will, was in essence saying, you're not going to die. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Don't give it another thought. And at that moment, the desensitization, I can almost say it, the desensitization, if you will, of sin and death entered. And we fall for it today. It's not a big deal. Let's don't think about it. Let's don't even wrestle with it. Put it off. It'll go away. Adam and Eve were forced, if you will, to wrestle with these three, four things. Do I really trust everything God says? Do I really trust everything God says like us this morning do? I trust everything God says. You might say, Jeff, you got a big Bible this morning. It's because it's large print. I kind of need it now. <laughs> Second thing that Adam and Eve had to ask, is God robbing me of some kind of fun, withholding things from me? Is he really that good of a God? Third, is disobeying God that big of a deal? Doesn't God want me just to be happy? Fourth, there's no consequence for disobeying what God said, is there? No consequences for disobeying him. You're not going to die. We're all basically good and God's a good God, so don't worry about it. 
hey, chances are you've wrestled with some of those same things. Maybe this morning you are wrestling with some of those same things. The choice they made broke the relationship with God that they had. They were cast out of the garden in Eden, and their sin put a barrier between them and God, and they chose what they wanted over a perfect life with God. Here's the fact. We all want to minimize sin and its consequences, don't we? We, we want to minimize what it's like to disobey God. And we want to minimize God's holiness and his righteousness. We want to think too highly of ourselves and not highly enough of God. You get the picture, right? You understand what happened then is the same thing that happens to us today. You wrestle with, will I really die? Should I just not consider it? Should I keep it off the radar screen so I don't have to even think about it? Two things before we dig into our passage in a moment. We minimize how bad hell is. Let me say that again. We minimize how bad hell is and also minimize how good heaven is. That's part of the struggle. That keeps us from dealing with the truth about eternity. Secondly, as we approach our study this week, especially next week, uh, here's my plug for next week to make sure you're here. We tend to think that any passage about eternity, heaven or hell, is only figurative. You think that way? You think, oh, well, most of these are just figurative things that are spoken of that I don't understand. Let, let me caution you in that to say that a lot of the passages that speak about both are literal. There's definitely some figurative language, but a lot of them are literal. Don't get caught in thinking that. So this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, Luke chapter 16. If you want to make your way there. And look at some teaching Jesus does about eternity. We'll be in verse 19 and I'll go there in just one moment. Let me set the stage for you. Jesus, in chapters 9 through 19, is making his final trip back to Jerusalem for his last week of life. 9 through 19, it accounts multiple times Jesus going through the towns and villages, Galilee, all the way back on his trip to Jerusalem. And it was during this uh, accounting that Luke writes, he accounts um, many parables that Jesus teaches, okay? Lots of parables, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But as Jesus travels, the majority of these teachings in these chapters, 10 chapters, is about eternity. He's very intent on helping them understand why he came, who he was, and what was going to happen. 
And so as he's making this trip, these parables he teaches are simply stories with spiritual truths in them that help people understand what he's talking about. Okay? And so lots of parables as he makes this trip. Like Luke 15, just before this, are three parables Jesus talks about. One is the parable of the lost sheep, which is the importance of having joy over one person who will repent and being saved. The value of one sheep that's lost that the shepherd would go after. The second is the parable of the lost coin and the importance of one repenting to escape hell. And then finally, the most popular and well-known probably is the parable of the prodigal son, you know, the son that left and went to a faraway land that was separated, and the joy of the father when the son returned. And Jesus is illustrating that those that are dead and separated from him when they come home, there's rejoicing, there's a reinstatement back into the family. So let me say this. As I get ready to dig into chapter 16, 19 through 31, this is going to be heavy. I'm going to force you to think about the thing you don't want to think about. Thanks, Jeff. But I hope to end this with the greatest news that you will ever learn. So let's look at Luke 16, 19 through 31. Again, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He tells this story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone would go to them from the dead, they will repent. 
And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear, uh, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Let me pray for us as we look a little closely at this passage. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you told this parable. These are your words. And I pray as we read them, we recognize why you taught them. And it was taught out of love and an opportunity for those who are separated that they might be reunited with you. So as we study, as we look this morning, open our hearts that we might hear very clearly your word in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 16 includes this, this teaching about hell, which is, I'm going to use the word Hades this morning because it's important for us to recognize there's a difference, okay? Hades is the current place for those who die that are separated from God, that they don't know God and God does not know them. Hell, as we will discover in Revelation, is the eternal resting place that comes into being when Christ returns and Christ reclaims all things and brings all things to its final end, new heaven, new earth. With me? I want to make sure you're awake. You with me? I should do what Carrie did last week, shouldn't I? But I'd need a squirrel, so never mind. <laughs> It seems to me that this is a more specific story that Jesus teaches than a parable. I said that Jesus has lots of parables throughout this. But I want you to notice something very interesting. This is the only story Jesus tells like a parable that has a person's name in it. That's interesting. If it's just a parable, why does he give a person's name? I think it's highly possible, as many commentators would say, that um, Jesus was maybe either mixing a parable or this is more accurate than just a parable being made up. Either way, this is one of the most detailed accounts of Hades. So we have two people in this story. We have a rich man and a poor man. Now, the rich man had focused his life on himself. He had lived all his life accumulating all he could accumulate, enjoying all the happiness this life could give him, living for himself. There was no consideration of eternity. He had all the comforts this life could possibly give him. Actually, the wording is very specific here talking even about the color of his wardrobe and the nice house he lived in, the extravagant lifestyle that this man would have lived. Loving others was not a consideration. Look at the way he treated Lazarus. Gave him no care, no concern whatsoever. Would not even give him the scraps from his table. He had fine clothes, fine food, and probably lived in a fine mansion. He had the very best this life could offer. What need would he have? He was enjoying it now. Now notice in this story that it doesn't say that this rich man got rich illegally. 
doesn't say that he had done anything bad to get this money. doesn't say that he cheated anyone. It just says that he was well off. No questionable means were used to gain it. Maybe that means he was a real go-getter in life. He worked hard. He paid attention. He was known by men, but he was not known by God. He had bought into the lie that we talked about. Oh, you surely won't die. And so don't worry about it. Don't even give it a second thought. Now, the other person of this story is a poor man, a very poor man. And his name is Lazarus, which means helped of God. But in society, he was really poor. He was not able to care for himself or even provide for himself. The wording that is used here means he was even shoved aside. He was this big inconvenience that people didn't want to see or hear about. But this poor man is known by God, but disregarded by men. He had no standing in society. He easily was ignored because he was inconvenient. Looking at him would have been, I don't have time for this. And so here's the picture, folks. The rich man had no time for God, no need of God. He lived his life on his terms. The poor man had a very difficult life, but he knew God. His only hope and help was God, so he trusted he knew he would surely die. And so he did not fall for the deception. Well, how do I know he went to heaven? We're going to read on. Verse 22, we learn what happened when both of them died. They surely died. Upon death, we discover the fate of the two men, one known by God, one unknown by God. Both came to the end of their life, and their treasure would now determine their fate. Their passions and their priorities now led them to what they pursued and loved. Poor man dies, has no recognition by anyone. He doesn't even have a burial mentioned, but is carried away by angels in love to the presence of God. Abraham's side is a Jewish expression, meaning God's presence, means a place of honor, a place of close fellowship and unity back with God. And so he's carried to the current heaven, not the final heaven. And Jesus teaches about a great reversal that really happens between these two men. Do you see it? The one who has nothing now is in the kingdom with everything. The one who had everything is now going to be in hell, Hades, with nothing. Verse 23, the rich man dies, goes straight to Hades. And it's important to know Hades, this word that is used here, 
again, is um, the word used for the kind of temporary resting place for those until the final judgment, Hades. It was funny that uh, Kim reminded me of a story that when I was pastoring a church, I took a group of men to uh, Haiti, the country Haiti, on a missions trip, and there were six of us that were leaving, so uh, the Sunday before we left, uh, we all came up front and... uh, you know, the church prayed for us, and this young man in the church told his mom, said, Pastor Jeff and those men are really brave. They're going to Hades. <laughs> and so anyway, Hades is uh, this temporary place, if you will, hell the final destination. But notice this, when the two men die, there's no stopping, no options, no discussions. The last breath happens, and you're in one of two places. You see that. And the rest of the story goes on from there to really talk about the resting place of the rich man. Again, this is Jesus' words. And listen to what he said. Verse 23. This resting place of the rich man was a place of torment. Immediately he's taken to Hades, the place of the wicked. And it says he's in agony. He's suffering and there's no mention of relief. And I want to notice a couple of things about the suffering. Maybe to prod you this morning to think a little more about eternity. First off, the suffering includes multiple ways he suffers. One that says he lifted up his eyes There's a clear awareness of his circumstances and the hopelessness of his life. He lifts up his eyes. He is aware of his hopeless state. He may be recounting the decisions to have no need of God in his life. And that brings great regret, a form of suffering. He's suffering because he knows he has no chance to repent now. He knows his fate is sealed. Imagine this rich man thinking of all the times he had heard people speak of God. All the times someone had spoken with him. All the times that he had a chance. Imagine thinking all of that and knowing you disregarded God. It's a place of consciousness that he's in, and so he suffers. It's not some spiritual world, people floating around. It's a place of consciousness, real consciousness. He knew about where he was and his fate. He knew the goodness he was missing the love he would never get, the relief that was now not possible. It's a place where people are aware of their need for mercy. Notice the plead of the rich man. What does he want? Mercy. He knows of his torment with no hope of relief. It's a place of deep pain and agony, the text says. He says he's in anguish and a flame. He would give anything to have relief, anything. 
verse 25, a place of regret through his memories. He remembers the good things God gave him in life, yet how he would have been selfish, self-centered, not giving a care. Verse 26 speaks of the place of eternal hopelessness. And so he says he would do anything to get word back to his family so they would not come where he is. Anything. And so he begins to plead. But there's no second chances for him. And no more information needed for his family. Verse 26 speaks about a great chasm, a a fixed state in place where it's not possible for one person who dies and goes to be with God and one person who dies separated from God to make a choice to cross over. All the life's opportunities and chances he had been given and did not care about because he believed you will not surely die. Interesting, as I thought about this passage and thought about verse 30 and 31, although he is pleading for someone to go to his family, there's a sense in which he even now knows of God's fairness. Oh, oh, send someone to help them. He, He knows God is fair. How he even squandered his, but no, God would be fair and He got what he deserves, he knows it, but yet desires to have someone go to his family. The rich man had no love of God or need of God, and God granted him his desire from life. Woe to the person that God gives them over to what they want in this life with no regards for the next. So let me transition this morning from this happy topic, this this heavy topic. But you know what? We need to hear this, don't we? we? We need to know the truth. Because now that you know the truth, let me tell you about the good news that's better than any bad news Jesus told. How does... Jesus' teaching sit with you right now. Well, it would certainly be appropriate to be scared straight right now. Certainly would be something that should scare us. But it should cause us to do this, to think rightly about God. It should cause us to think rightly about God. Again, we all wrestle with this, oh, deception of you will surely not die. Don't worry about it. Don't talk about it. But that's not the truth of what Jesus spent 10 chapters in parables trying to warn people about. Think about it. Fear it. Worry about it. The gospel is God's answer to Hades and hell. So how should we respond this morning? I'm not going to preach another sermon. It'll seem like it here in a moment. But I want us to consider what 
Paul writes to Romans in chapter 5 as a way to pull this together to think rightly about God. Because this is the good news that's better than the bad news. And we got to think rightly about God. I'm going to pick up in the middle with verse 6. This is God's word about death. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Listen, God is a merciful God. Listen to what that text says. While we were still sinners, you can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself right with God. Christ came and died while we were living on the path that goes straight to Hades. This is a God who is merciful, not giving us what we deserve if we accept his salvation. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't say, convince me that I should save you. God didn't say, make a good argument and I'll send my son to take care of this. He said, while you were still sinners by the way which we are, Christ died for us. One of our passages this morning said, God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy, hoping none would perish. Second way to think rightly about God, not only is God merciful, but God also is a God of grace. A God of grace. He, he gives us what we don't deserve, and that's salvation because of his great love. Chapter 6 says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we earn by our sin, but the gift of God is eternal life. God is a God full of grace. And so he sends Christ to be the sacrifice, to die, to raise again, to live forever so that we can be forgiven. God is a God of grace. Finally, God is a saving God. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's heaven, my friends. So the bad news that we saw, we're separated, our sin has separated us from God, just like Adam and Eve. God, being rich in mercy, a God of grace, will send his son to die our death so that we escape hell. We are reconciled, we are restored by Christ. And that only happens, it says in our text, by faith. A belief in who Jesus is and a belief in what he did. If you've been in substance very long, part of who we are is we're gospel-centered. Why? Because that's the good news. If we preached every week on Luke 16 without the good news, it would be horrible. But now that you know the good news, you know about the good God who loves us and provides a way of salvation. My friends, this morning, that is our God. That's our God. A God rich in mercy, full of grace, willing to save, who does not give us what we deserve unless we choose to reject it. This is Jesus' teaching. Might his teaching open your eyes this morning? Maybe you've uh, heard and thought about eternity more than you wish to this morning. I hope so. For those of us that are believers, this should put a, a bounce in our step of rejoicing like never before. Because we have the hope of glory of God with God. For those of you who heard this this morning, who have never come to faith in Christ, I might say read very closely the fate of the rich man who squandered the grace and forgiveness of God for a life lived on his own terms. Amen? This morning, Jesus says, if you call on him, you will hear your prayer. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to restore you in relationship. Loving God, living for God. Next week, we're going to dig into heaven, which will be much more joyful. We'll get the good news after hearing the bad news this week. I'm going to stick around after the service. If uh, you have questions and, and want to just fire them up at me, that's fine. I'd love to. If I can pray for you, I'd be happy to. But if you've heard God speak to you this morning, don't, don't turn that voice off. Don't disregard what you heard. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, uh, thank you for this truth uh, about eternity. 
next week as we'll learn about eternity with you and the great joy we learned this week about the great sorrow of rejecting you. Every one of us, even this morning, if they don't know you, heard this morning, just like the rich man and his family, they heard the truth and rejected the truth. They chose their way over your way, just like we did until we repented. It's a thing anyone can do. It's a thing anyone can do to repent, bow their heart before you and confess that they have sinned, that they've lived their life with no regard for you. Maybe some are wrestling with that thought right now. For some, knowing that they need your forgiveness and then repenting and crying out, asking for forgiveness is the second step. Knowing we bring nothing to the table, we can't earn favor with you. Yet, you're a God rich in mercy, a God of grace, and a God who saves if we do that. So I pray for those this morning that are wrestling through that. I pray for those who have already done that in their life. Might this passage bring rejoicing. Thank you, Jesus, for your teaching in Christ's name. Amen.